Good morning. If you have a Bible, please open it to Philippians chapter 2. We'll be getting there eventually, if you want to be ahead of things. And while you turn there, I'd also encourage you to pull out the notes in this morning's message. And I'll remind you that having finished our study of Habakkuk, and before we begin our, what will probably be three plus year long study of the Gospel of John, um, we are pausing to do a series entitled, What Membership Means to Us. Uh, every couple of years, probably eight years ago is the last time we taught on this, we think it's important to remind the body what it means, what the scripture means, and what we understand union with the local church to include. Um, this time, we're coming at it from the perspective of six points of discussion that we talk through with prospective members. We've had a number of new families, new people, and so understanding from our vantage point what we think encapsulates membership, that the New Testament has membership is clear. Um, you can see in the book of Acts how people are added to their number. There's some form of record keeping. There's a, there's a structured list for widows. There's some organizational structure, and yet how the New Testament church did that, we don't know. And so we can explain to you what we do, the mechanisms we use. And so for us, this body, if you remember here, we consider talking through six points. And in my understanding, it's less that coming out the other side of that interview with the elders, you become a member rather than you're recognized to be one. It's an idea of where these six things are present, we would understand biblical joining and membership has occurred. And so last week, we considered the first two of those things. The first question we'll talk through is, have you personally put your faith and trust in the the death, burial, resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ for the salvation of your sins? Have you trusted the gospel of God? Second, have, have you been obedient to follow the Lord since coming to faith in believers' baptism? Well, the third question we discuss is, have you read... Do you substantially agree with, and will you not oppose, Martinsdale's statement of faith? So that's what we're looking at this morning, is that we are united by a common confession of faith. And I will freely admit that when I became a new Christian, I had a lot of questions about doctrinal statements. I had a suspicion of them, in fact. Why can't we just read the Bible? I still get this from folks sometimes. And you could even imagine someone reasoning from what I said last week, because I made the point clearly last week, those who are trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins are members of the households of God. They are members of the universal church. They are our brothers and sisters in a way that trumps and transcends fleshly genealogy. You remember Jesus is, is gathered with disciples and his mother and brothers show up. And, and you trust me, in that culture, honoring your parents, honoring your kin and your, your flesh and blood is a tremendous, important deal. And they say, Jesus, teacher, your mother, your brothers are outside. And Jesus' response, who is my mother? Who is my brother? But he who does the will of God. And so you could argue someone saying, look, if the gospel divides all of humanity into two classes... Sons of darkness, sons of light, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, those who are alive in Christ, those who are adopted into God's family, those who are sons of the devil. Why not leave it at that? After all, doctrines can divide, and Christians have been debating and discussing the meaning of certain passages for the last 2,000 years. Why, why engage in that? If we can recognize that someone has been born again, someone has been forgiven, if they're good enough for God's corporate church why wouldn't they be good enough for our local church? Why would we make any distinction? And what is the purpose of even writing down doctrines? Why not have no creed but Christ? So I intend to try to answer that this morning, why we think it's good, why we think it's right and fitting that we say, look, we, we would hope and expect and ask you to be in large agreement with our statement of faith and that you'd understand what we teach, and that you won't be teaching contrary. Now, it doesn't mean people can't gather with, with us and challenge and want to work through things, but that's what we're understanding. So let me, let me try to take this in four points, trying to address four potential questions. You can see the questions after the point in quotation marks and italics. So the first is the priority of holding the sound doctrine. Answering the question, why not just believe the gospel and not bother with anything else? 
Now, someone might not say it quite that flippantly, but this would be the notion. Why not just focus on the gospel and really not worry about the other things? Let the Lord sort those out. We'll figure it out when we get to heaven. Why not do that? And the first answer I'd give you, and this, we haven't even gotten the doctrinal statements yet. The first answer I'd give you is because if that is your response, you are being unfaithful and disobedient. You're being unfaithful and disobedient. If you have set aside, I have intended not, I've determined not to learn doctrine, to learn truth. And let me, by way of introduction, cover a couple terms. Doctrine just means teaching, the content of teaching. Theology is simply the knowledge of God. Everyone's a theologian, even the atheist. Their theology is there is no God. That's theology. Just like any of the other ologies, knowledge of a topic. So everyone's a theologian, everyone has teaching, everyone has doctrine. Those terms may sound like they're part of the academy, but they truly, all of us, believe the world works a certain way, believe certain things are true. And the priority here is to hold sound or healthy doctrine. Now the first point I want to make is this, the very great commission, and and usually when I hear people say, no creed but Christ... Let's just get the gospel right and then get the gospel to the nations. It's sort of assuming that doctrinal clarity and precision will be at odds with the Great Commission and evangelism. But listen to the Great Commission. I'm going to read to you Matthew 28, 19 to 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. The Great Commission commands us to teach a body of knowledge that extends beyond just the gospel. We're not being faithful to the Great Commission if we say we're just going to proclaim the gospel and we don't want to be divisive and we don't want to cause controversy. So we're just going to teach the gospel, and then we're just going to keep leapfrogging and teaching the gospel. You, you may cover the first half of the Great Commission, the part that covers baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But verse 20, teaching them to observe not some, not a lot of, but all that I have commanded you. King Jesus has commandments, and we're not being faithful to the Great Commission if we say, well, some of Jesus' commandments different Christians disagree on. So we're not going to teach them. We're not being faithful. The blank here, we must train the church in all of Christ's commands. That's the goal. We're not being obedient to King Jesus. We're not being faithful to the Great Commission if we lop off teaching what Christ commands. It's just disobedience. It's unbelief and it's rebellion. Point B And if you're in Philippians 2, we'll pick up here. We must strive to be one-minded and in full accord. Not only is each one of us, I'm going to argue, called by Christ to be growing in our knowledge of the faith, to be growing in sound and healthy teaching, but we're to do it corporately. We're to endeavor to do it together. This is one of the reasons why we want to know, hey, if you want to partner with us, you want to be part of this local church, are you largely in agreement with what we believe the Bible teaches? And if the answer is no, it's not go, go away. It's so then let's meet and gather and see if we can draw closer to be of one mind. Listen to Paul in Philippians 2. Read this. If there's any encouragement in Christ and comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul urges us on the basis of the comfort we have from love, the encouragement we have in Christ, and the participation we have in the Spirit, and God's affection and sympathy given to us to strive to be of one mind. That's the one that appears twice. Of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. If you keep reading Philippians, you'll realize there's some quarreling, there's some factions going on. And Paul is saying, please complete my joy. Please make it a priority to try to draw together to be more and more of one mind. So it's not just individual growth in healthy doctrine, but it's a corporate church growth. This is why we, it matters to us 
Is there substantial agreement? Um, Point C, not only are we to strive together and individually, but we're also to contend, to defend the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Listen to Jude 1 verse 3. Beloved, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write to, to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now get that. Jude is distinguishing between our common salvation and something that might overlap but is not the same. It's distinct. I wanted to write you about thing A, he says. I wanted to write to you about our common salvation. However, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And my point is simply, he says, the faith once for all delivered for the saints, he means something larger than the gospel and our common salvation. Otherwise, there'd be no point in saying, I wanted to write to you about our common salvation, and now I am writing to you about our common salvation. The faith once for all delivered for the saints, it's not the same thing as our common salvation. It's a larger category. And if you keep reading Jude, you'll see there are false teachers, like hidden reefs, like dry rain clouds, like blemishes among us. And he's urging the church to be on their guard against false teaching. Finally, um, church leadership, elders, one of the qualifications of elders is that they must be able to teach in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict it. Let me just read to you Titus chapter 1, verse 9. Paul tells Titus, hey, Titus, here's why I left you behind in Crete to set in order what was lacking in the churches, that you might appoint elders. And he goes through the qualifications of an elders, and get this one. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and also rebuke those who contradict it. So our leaders have to have attained to some level of competency in biblical teaching and doctrine. So the whole body is called to grow. The whole body is called to learn and and grow in their understanding of sound doctrine. The church is called to strive together to be on the same page with teaching. The church is called upon by Jude to, to defend, to contend for the faith. And its leaders must be competent not only to teach what is true, but also, this is the part that our culture doesn't like so much, to refute those who contradict, to be able to defend. That doesn't mean you have to be a jerk. That just means you're willing, and, and there's, a, there's a faithfulness in exposing error. And this can be a great thing. Pastor Daniel and I had a four-and-a-half-hour meeting this week with a dear friend of mine who holds to some significantly different doctrine. He, he trusts in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's a brother, but he's post-millennial, and he, he holds to differing views on who to baptize and how to baptize them and on um, uh, the notions of civil obedience and disobedience. We had a fantastic, robust peaceable, edifying discussion and debate. It was great. It was great. It was a wonderful time. In fact, we've got it on the calendar, he and I do at least, to to get together and continue it next week. You can have disagreement. You can have real disagreement. You can have robust disagreement, and you can still have peace and love. We can act like family disagreeing, like brothers and sisters disagreeing. Our culture insists, if you disagree with me, you hate me. And we need to model that there are ways, especially when you're dealing with people in the household of faith, that we can have disagreements that are loving, that are kind, that are peaceable, that are edifying, that are iron, sharpening iron. And that's part of what leaders and elders need to be able to do. Titus 1.9, 1 Timothy. Oh, there's so many passages I could show you on this point. Let me just read one or two of them to you. 1 Timothy 4. Now, the Spirit expressly says, in the latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, the teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require absence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So if you read through the New Testament, there's a lot of time given, especially by Paul and James and others, Peter as well, the danger of false teaching. And so when someone says, no creed but Christ, you need to lovingly point out that is itself a creed. Right? No creed but Christ is a creed. A woefully inadequate and insufficient one, but it's a creed, all right. 
But even if you had no creed, no confession, no, no statement of faith, something will practically function because people believe things about things. There's, there's no such thing as not having a doctrinal position. Take something as simple as baptism. You can decide who to baptize, how to baptize. Even if your decision is, we, just, we can't figure it out, so we won't baptize, that's a position. It's a rebellious one, but it's a position. There's, there's no neutral ground. We just have to faithfully, peaceably, humbly work our way through. And we need to make sure that we're not pretending we're more confident on things than we really are. We've got to be open to pushback. But we need to pursue understanding what God has said to us. We need to pursue understanding what God has said to us. And if you're intimidated by this, understand God has given you his spirit. He's made you priests. So we need to get priesting. We need to get priesting. We need to interpret the word and hold it rightly. And he's given us people to help with that. And we should be doing it in the community, doing it with the help of your leaders. But to simply throw your hands up in the air and say, this stuff's too hard, is not to be faithful. Now, we'll do it at different paces. We'll do it to differing degrees. But all of us need to have that goal. In fact, turn with me, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Let me just make this point clearly, and then we can move on. Hebrews chapter 5. The author of Hebrews is doing an extended teaching on Melchizedek from Genesis, explaining that Melchizedek, a priest and king, prefigures the Lord Jesus Christ in his priesthood. And the author of Hebrews is growing discouraged and offering a gentle rebuke to his hearers as he assumes they're going to have a hard time tracking with him. So in chapter 5, verse 11, we read this. About this, we have much to say. And if you doubt that the author of Hebrews means what he says, you can just start picking it up in chapter 7 where he gets right back to Melchizedek. He does indeed have a lot to say. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now catch verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, the entire group of his audience that he's writing to by this time ought to be teachers. Not that all of them will be in the teaching offices in the church, but all of them have been studying and are able to communicate biblical truth to others. Look at, look at what he considers elementary teachings in chapter 6. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Here's, here are the elementary teachings. Not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works, faith towards God, instructions about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we'll do if God permits. You guys all ought to be saying, have your head wrapped around the stuff enough that you could communicate it, you could teach it, you could fill in for a Sunday school class if necessary to teach on the judgment of the dead. Washings, repentance from dead works. That's the expectation for believers. That's what faithfulness looks like. And the author of Hebrews is mildly, but really, rebuking his readers for not doing that. It simply is not faithful to say, these things are hard, these things are difficult, therefore let other people do it. It's not faithful. Second, the example of formulating sound doctrine. So on my first point, I've just tried to establish that all believers are called to grow in their knowledge of the faith once delivered for the saints. We're to grow in our knowledge of what God has said. It's unfaithful to say, I'm simply going to understand the gospel and I'm not going to proceed beyond that. Um, We need to be growing in our understanding of truth and our understanding of doctrine and our understanding of theology. We're not being faithful. We're not being obedient. But that's different than saying we ought to try to compile it and and put it together in in memorable ways and and write it down. And so the next question I want to consider is this. Is it going beyond what is written to form doctrinal statements? I mean, I have seen people use doctrinal statements like they are an authority. I'll sometimes refer to it as a paper pope. When somebody isn't quoting the Bible, they're quoting the Westminster Confession like it's the Bible. Or any other confession, the London Baptist Confession. Is it, is it possibly dangerous to form these things? Is there any biblical warrant for doing this? I believe there is. I believe there is. The example of formulating sound doctrine. Now, if you flip your insert over, I would draw your attention 
to something that is found five times in what are called the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. Five times in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, Paul gives us faithful sayings or trustworthy sayings. Let's read them. 1 Timothy 1.15, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. 1 Timothy 3.1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. 1 Timothy 4.8-9, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. As it holds promise to the present life and also for the life to come, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. 2 Timothy 2.11-12, the saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. And Titus 3, 4 to 8. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. And what becomes clear as you study them, and I, my understanding of them, is these are concise, pithy, memorable summaries of Christian doctrine. There's evidence. You see the parallelism pretty clearly in the Second Timothy example. It's interesting. The First Timothy three one example in the Greek rhymes. Episkopos orkatai kaluergui pithumai. I believe one translation even tries to uh, mimic that rhyming in the English. If anyone an oversire desires to be a noble task, desireth he. And, and what, what we're understanding is Paul is not coining these things. He's aware of these slogans. He's aware of these pithy, memorable, doctrinal teachings. And he's giving him his apostolic stamp of approval. That, that's a good one, he's saying. That, that, that's a good one. That'll, that'll keep. That's a good one. And what we're seeing then is that the early church, in, in discipling, in catechizing, in, in maturing its believers, was taking truth that they considered to be important, and they were packaging it in memorable, clear, precise, well-spoken ways, which is exactly what we're trying to do with our doctrinal statement. There is warrant. There's an example. T- turn over to 1 Timothy 3.16, another, probably the clearest example. So your blanks here, by the way, five trustworthy sayings. Point B, other formulations of doctrine. It's not a ton of it, but the ones that are there, I think, are clear enough. 1 Timothy 3.16. Great, indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness. And you get six parallel statements. Perfectly parallel. This is not accidental. This is poetic. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. And don't miss that opening phrase. Great we confess. This six-fold parallel statement is existing before Paul's writing 1 Timothy. He's referencing to Timothy something they confess together. The ESV doesn't bring that out as clearly. The New American Standard does. Great is our common confession, is how the New American Standard And the legacy standard versions translate those Greek words. Paul is referencing a common confession that both he and Timothy have. This is, I think, the text that some people get the notion of confessional churches. And Paul is rejoicing in the fact that both he and Timothy, and we know that 1 Timothy is also addressed to the Ephesian church at the very end with a grace to you all, have agreed upon this common confession, this common summary of truth. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed in the world, take up in the glory. And Paul and Timothy and the Ephesian church have that confession in common. So yes, there is warrant biblically. We see in its infancy the church doing exactly that. Trying to take truth and packaging it and and saying it in memorable, well-said, precise, clear, pithy ways and then Paul is, is rejoicing the fact that they have this common confession. So the example of formulating sound doctrine, is it going beyond what is written to form doctrinal statements? No. 
Not in principle. It's not to say it can't be done wrongly. It's not to say you can't make too much of it. But we see them doing exactly that. Now, their doctrinal statements aren't as developed as ours, but that's a doctrinal statement. Verse 16, it's a statement of Christian doctrine. No question. So, let's get back to the outline and consider question number three as we look at the authority of written sound doctrine. What actual authority does a doctrinal statement hold? And I'm guessing if you're here this morning and you have any uneasiness about doctrinal statements... It's probably hinging upon this question. What authority does it have? I certainly have seen people, I think, treat doctrinal statements as far more authoritative than they ought to. So let me just give you the good news, my first blank here. Extra-biblical writings, the reason why I have to say extra-biblical writings is if I just wrote doctrinal statements, I'd be including things like 1 Timothy 3.16. So any writings of men outside of Scripture summarizing doctrine as good as they may be, have no intrinsic authority. Their authority is extrinsic, outside of them. A summary of truth only gets authority as it corresponds to and can be shown to correspond to Scripture. I I don't care who the body is writing it down, whether it's the Westminster Divines, whether it's the Vatican and its magisterium, or the members at Martinsdale Community Church, it has no intrinsic authority, none whatsoever. These statements have only derived authority, only the authority of seeing and the burden being on the one pointing to it of showing how this lines and corresponds up with what Scripture says. Turn, turn to Acts 15. And let me push back here for a moment against, um, in my second point, with those who would try to put, I think, more authority, any real authority into these statements. I mean, the, 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 the most egregious example of this is, of course, the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church has three pillars of truth. It's the Scripture, but equal, on a par with Scripture, is the Church's magisterial authority. In Roman Catholic teaching, when the Church gathers together, with the bishops and the cardinals... And, and when they form a synod, and when they come to an agreement and they produce a document, that has absolute binding authority on the faithful. Let me show you the very first church council. It's in Acts 15. At this council are at least three men who write scripture. I'll show them to you. Verse 6, the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. The matter being, must the Gentiles be circumcised to become part of the church? Must the Gentiles observe the dietary laws and the Mosaic customs to be part of the church? And this was such a controversial issue, and the church is so divided. I mean, we take this for granted, but if you'd grown up all your life thinking pork was unclean and filthy and defiled you, you're going to have a hard time worshiping alongside of someone who just ate a ham sandwich. And and you are. You are. And so they had to get together to work through this. Who's at this? Verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. So Peter's there. You know, Peter who writes 1 Peter and 2 Peter. Verse 12, and all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul. The author who writes the most books in the New Testament, he's not the one who wrote most of the New Testament, that'd be Luke. Luke Acts crushes Paul, but for a number of books, Paul wins. And then we get to James, verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied. So you've got Paul, Peter, and James. One of them is the half-brother of Jesus. You've got the rest of the apostles who, who haven't scattered yet, and you've got all the elders in Jerusalem. In other words... I would submit to you, if there were ever a church council that could write a document and say, here you go, here is your binding authority, here is your inerrant and inspired document, this is it, okay? And what's striking to me is the authority they place on it. Pick it up in verse 22. Then it seemed good the apostles and elders of the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch and Paul and Barnabas. Jump down to verse 24. 
Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words and settling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord. They strengthened it up. But what are they appealing to? Hey, you, you Gentile Christians, you Jewish Christians in the surrounding area, the apostles and all the elders of the Jerusalem church got together, and we are all of one mind. This seems good to all of us. And we thought you might want to know that. We thought that might be helpful and instructive. And then a third time, verse 27, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas who themselves will tell you the same thing by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us. In other words, what they're saying is we see in our unity, we see in our common understanding the work of the Spirit We see that the Spirit who has given us the mind of Christ has caused us to be on the same page on this matter. But they don't appeal to a greater authority. And if anyone could, this is it. So the blank here, the first church council wrote, it seems good to us. So on the one hand, here is your basis, your precedent for a church council. And I think here's a warning to the limits of its authority. Which then means the Martinsdale Community Church Statement of Faith, I think, is best understood. I've got a copy of it here. I was reading it this morning. If you haven't read it in a while, I'd encourage you to. Um, Is our common summary of agreed upon biblical truth. What, What is this document? What is this statement of faith? Does it have any intrinsic authority? Nah, none. But we think it's helpful, it's useful as a commonly agreed upon, we commonly agree. This this is a pretty good summary of what we believe the Bible teaches. And and those of us who gather here and are part of this body are largely of one mind and one accord in these things. And that's significant. And that's something we should be striving towards. And that's something we see the work and the mark of the Spirit in. You know, one of of the uh, few votes we've had that has been 100% unanimous was the adopting of our most recent addition to our statement of faith. And and trust me, I was rejoicing in the fact that when we added our statement on marriage and human sexuality, the fact that after talking through it, working through it, everyone here who voted was of one mind. I I see the, the work of the Spirit in that. I find great encouragement in that. We can disagree on the color of the chairs. That's fine. We can disagree on you know, whether or not to, to get the, the window wells or not. That's fine. But when it came to adding to our statement of faith, we did it unanimously. I, I rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. This is our common summary of agreed upon biblical truth. Now, that still leaves the burden on us to show that the Bible teaches this. We don't appeal to this as the authority. But it's also helpful when someone's coming in to make it clear, hey, this is what we believe. And even if you haven't figured some of these things out, even if you're still working through some of these things, we wanted to go on record and say, here's what we believe, so that you could be aware of that coming in. Coming in. Which brings us into the last question, the selection of particular sound doctrine. And here's the last question I want to consider is this. How does one determine what to include in a doctrinal statement? Surely, this list doesn't include all the truth that most of us agree upon. This, I don't believe, says anything about six-day creation. This doesn't say anything about Jesus' miracles. This doesn't say anything about speaking in tongues. This doesn't say anything about men's and women's roles. There's a lot of things that I think we're probably on the same page with that we haven't included here. So why do we pick these things? Why are these truths the one we thought we're putting pen to paper? Why are these the truths we thought to be important to say, hey, just heads up, this is what we believe, this is what we teach. And why are these the things that we say, hey, we, we would very much like to be largely on the same page. And so we're going to look at this in five points. Why choose the way we chose? First, discretional. Discretional. Which is to say, we've got to figure this out on our own, and so does every other church. We see the model of selecting truth to to, to formulate clearly. And yet we aren't told 
how to do that. If you go through that list of trustworthy sayings of Paul, they apparently thought making memorable, making rhyme and pithy, the fact that if someone wants to be an elder, that's a noble thing they're seeking. That We don't have that in our doctrinal statement. We didn't include that. But for whatever reason, the early church that Paul is associated with did. So there's this there's freedom and discretion. My point is saying, I'm trying to tell you why we chose what we chose. And don't sit in judgment on the church down the street to put different things in. Some church have more robust doctrinal statements. Um, but I've often heard that ours is far longer than others. And so there's a, there's a matter of discretion here, a matter of discretion at work. I can tell you how we've selected or how I believe we've selected what is in our statement, but there isn't any um, demanded biblical formula of what is to be added and what is not. What we do know, though, is that it is good to pass on and to hold fast to accumulated teaching in a church. Listen to Romans six seventeen. Thanks be to God that you who once were slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Paul's thankful that the standard and content of teaching that they began with, they've held to. The only, the only part of our statement of faith that I've had any hand in writing is that one article on marriage. All of, all of it predates me. I'm guessing Joel and the leadership of, of Joel's tenure had the most hand in that. And so it's been passed on to us. And we're thankful for that. We're thankful for a tradition of faith. We're thankful that each generation of the church doesn't need to figure it all out all over again. And the Bible shows that thankfulness, but there's discretion at work. Point two, doctrinal statements and doctrinal formulations are frequently occasional. They're brought up by a particular occasion. And what I mean is it's often formulated in response to error. It's often formulated in response to error. I'm guessing the reason we don't have anything in our statement of faith about men's and women's roles and whether or not a woman can be an elder is because it's never been a controversial issue here. And if it were a controversial issue, well, we'd probably need to clarify and specify and study and get together and come to one mind, and then you'd probably have a new amendment to our Constitution. I mean, our statement of faith. That's what happened with our statement on marriage. We, we got it in. We, we added it to our statement of faith before the Obergefell Supreme Court decision. But we saw that looming, saw that coming. And since so many churches were taking a different position on the definition of marriage, the purpose, and the, the function of human sexuality and gender, we thought it would behoove us to be clear on what we think. So as not to deceive people coming in. And so as to hold those who are members to say, hey, we... we said we believe this. We said this is what's taught here, so you, you can't faithfully with integrity teach something contrary in your small group, right? So it's occasional. It's occasional. Most churches didn't have statements on these things until the last 15, 20 years. The occasion of the error is the basis of the formulation, and we see that also in Scripture. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. And he's going to give them a, a one-doctrine test, which strongly suggests the controversy going on at that time. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The, hum, the real humanity of Jesus if you read the opening verses of 1 John, you'll see John emphasize what we saw with our eyes, what we heard with our ears, what we touched with our hands concerning the word of God. He really came in the flesh. He didn't appear human. He was human. Well, then you find out from extra biblical sources that platonic theory bleeding into the church led to the earliest heresies in the church weren't against the deity of Jesus, but his humanity. And so this doctrinal test is occasional because of the false teaching, this doctrine gets emphasized. Paul, this is the strangest one. I, I really am curious to know what the backstory to this one is. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, I want to tell you, nobody prophesying, prophesying by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed. I'm really curious what the backdrop that Paul had to clarify that one was. You, you, you need to understand, nobody speaking by the Spirit says Jesus is accursed. 
But the Corinthians had some problems. They had some problems. That's okay. We do too. But okay. Occasional. Point C. Why these truths and not others? Ethical. Ethical. Which is to say, as we're considering which truths that we believe, do we think it's important for us to largely be on the same page with, and which ones, even though we think God has spoken to them, even though we think we understand them, we don't, it's clear that we're not going to be able to coexist in a body if some of us think others of us are doing wickedly. So issues like the, the permanence of marriage as a lifelong covenant between man and woman with the narrow exception that Jesus gives is, is going to be necessary for us to f- be in fellowship Understanding something as simple as polygamy, you would have, I would have a difficult time walking alongside of someone who thought it was okay to have you know, five wives or husbands. And so issues of ethics and Christian living are significant because you can't really agree to disagree on that. If you think it's okay to, to sin, and what I think you're doing is sin, if I love you, I'm going to, have to come talk to you. And so that's one of the reasons we put our, our statement in about marriage, gender, and sexuality, because we're going to have a hard time coexisting peaceably um, without clarity on what we believe is good and evil. And doctrine speaks to those things. Listen to, well, turn to 1 Timothy 1, verses 8 through 10. 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. Doctrine is not just some abstract category. Now, we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understand this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, Men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Those are doctrinal categories. Striking your father and mother is a doctrinal category. It's a bad one. You don't do that. But he's not separating doctrine from practical living. And so... Identifying what we understand to be right and good and what we understand to be evil is important for if we're to walk together. Um, hope that makes sense. Point D, central, central. Truths that we believe to be fundamental. Um, scripture makes it clear that while... <laughs> All of Scripture is for us to receive, and all of Scripture is for us to read and know God's mind. Some of the truth claims in Scripture are more foundational, more fundamental. We just saw that already in Hebrews chapter 6, laying aside the elementary teachings of Christianity. So some of the truth claims, some of the teaching of Scripture is the elemental or the foundational truths, right? In Galatians 1.9, we looked at this last week, when you're dealing with issues of the gospel itself, you're dealing with issues that we can't agree to disagree on. Paul makes the point, as we have said, so now I say, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. He says, if, if I or an angel appeared, makes no difference. Damned to hell. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul, also speaking the gospel, says this in verses 3 to 4, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. So all truth is important, but some truth is absolutely critically foundational. Most emphatically, and this is why we put the truth claims of the gospel, and this is our very first point, the gospel itself, a right understanding of the gospel, But the resurrection of the dead, Paul has some equally strong things to say about. In 1 Corinthians 15, for if the dead are not raised, verse 16, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Or the teaching of the humanity of Christ that we saw in 1 John 4. Or the deity of Christ, where Jesus says, look, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. 
or inerrancy and the authority of God's word? How can we walk together in agreement if some of us think the Bible is just some book some men wrote or it's a testimony to Revelation? Now, there are some foundational truths that we're not going to get very far walking together with, even if we're all believing the same gospel, if we're not on the same page with. You think of it this way, all truth's important, but there are some parts of a car that if you take them out, the car won't go an inch. There are other parts of the car you can take out, and you might be able to get 10 or 15 miles down the road before it starts to wobble, and others you might be able to drive for years. All of it's important. There's no parts that are unimportant. There are some that have more immediate and practical effects. And so foundational truths. You guys remember the fundamentalist movement. That was an attempt to try to mark off Christianity. Fundamental key doctrines. One of the reasons why they put the virgin birth in there is because it served as such a helpful and quick way of identifying where people stood on regards to supernatural claims. What they were dealing with was modernism, and there was an attempt for people to try to take Jesus' ethical teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, but reject the miraculous claims. The feeding of the 5,000 becomes like a Marxist lesson, and everyone having a piece of bread under their cloak, and when they saw the generosity of the boy, they decided to be generous, and it sounds cute. It's just not what the text says. So a very quick litmus test, or to use a biblical term, a very quick shibboleth, was, hey, do you hold to the virgin birth? Because it's so clearly taught. If the answer is no, well, you just figured out where they stand on supernaturalism. So foundational, central truths. Which brings us then to point E, practical. Practical. And at the end of the day, given that there's a discretionary authority of what to include, what we're going to insist upon, what we think are the important central truths, there's a practical purpose. It functions. Which is to say, in a different context, we might have a different list. But because we enjoy religious freedom, because there are healthy, God-fearing, scripture-teaching churches in our region, some of it's just practical. Um, for instance, we disagreeing on who should be baptized, whether it be infants or professing Christians, there, there are brothers I love and learn from and go to conferences and hear them speak at but we, we probably make that a, an issue. That's in our statement that we want to work through that. Because just imagine the confusion. Imagine the, the, the conflict in the body if half the elders and half the body were reaching out to the Rolex. Because, man, you've got to be faithful to baptize that child. You've got to obey the Lord in that. And the other half of us was equally strongly saying, no, it'd be chaos. And so there's a reason why our Presbyterian brothers... There's a reason why our Reformed brothers, who I will see in heaven, who can teach me and, benefit, and I can benefit from in so many areas, gather in another church down the street. Because while we're still not on the same page, while we're still working together towards unity, that's part of my meeting this last week that was four and a half hours long, was hoping that me and my brother, who's a post-mill, paedo-baptist, and in other, other areas that we disagree on, that over time, over the coming years and months, we may come to one mind, we're not setting that aside. But in the meantime, it makes sense that he's gathering with a like-minded church in Pella right now and not here. It makes all the sense in the world, practically. Other issues might be the issues of spiritual gifts. It would be a chaotic Thanksgiving service if when it came time to give thanks, somebody spoke in tongues and somebody else tried to cast the demon out of them. Now, there are, there are God-fearing Christians. Wayne Grudem's systematic theology that I've used in our tough men's class, he holds a different view on spiritual gifts than I do. He's a brother. I'm going to see him in heaven. I've been to a conference he's spoken at, and I get why practically those types of issues are proved challenging for a body to coexist in. And if the context were different, if persecution was so strong and so rife that there were Christians dying and we were just trying to survive, we might well say in that context... You have a different view on baptism, but you love the Lord, you love his word, and you want to be faithful, come come gather with us. But given our context, and it's a purely pragmatic decision, it does seem as though certain truths, just we're going to have an easier time coexisting peaceably in a body. So, before we sing our final song, and we will sing our final song, let me just remind what we've covered here. If you're a Christian today, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, 
you are called upon by King Jesus, by your Lord, your God, and your Savior to never stop growing in your knowledge of his word. There's never a point where you get to say, I know enough. I can rest now. And you're called to do that corporately with others because it's not just enough that I know the truth, but that we all are of one mind. This is a group project. And we're to contend for the faith. And one of the qualifications of our leaders is that they've attained to some level of knowledge. We've seen that we see the early church doing exactly this, gathering truth, putting it together, packaging it, making it memorable. And the Apostle Paul, on at least five occasions, says, that's a good one. That's well said. We've realized that those statements that we write have no intrinsic authority. They're useful. They're helpful summaries. But only to the degree that they can be shown to represent what's taught in Scripture do they have any power or authority. And so um, I'd encourage you to read through our statement that we might grow to be more of one mind, that we might um, understand what God has said in his word for us, that we would be faithful in that. This is one of the things we want to grow in as a common confession, that as Paul says in 1 Timothy, great is our common confession, and he's rejoicing in that. Great is our common confession of these truths. Let me have a word of prayer. I'm going to call the worship team up. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord God, we thank you that you've not left us orphans. We thank you that you have gifted us your word. We thank you that you have gifted us your spirit so that we might understand your word. We thank you for each other, and I pray, Lord, that we would um, prove ourselves faithful, not lazy, not immature, but faithful men and women growing in the knowledge of you, sifting truth from error, holding to more and more healthy and sound teaching, and that we would do that together, that that we would help to complete Paul's joy by being of the same mind and in full accord that we might um, have a common confession and amen. Lord God, help us to be humble as we do that, not proud. Help us to be open to reason and teachable. Help us to be willing to sit down with those who disagree with us and open our Bibles and in love and in fellowship and in peace, reason together to see if these things are so. In Jesus' name, amen.